Okay, so um, how are we doing with Frankenstein? Are we halfway through? Has everyone finished? Is that a convincing nod? Well, I finished a round in it. <laughs> <laughs> I finished some of it. First and last page. <laughs> right, some of it is done. Okay, so what do we think? What do you think? Think, speak. I bring you to life. Did you like it? Yes. How come? I just... You knew there was going to be a follow-up. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop it. Um, I just really like, I don't know, it's the same thing with Paradise Lost. Like, I really like Satan, mm -hmm. the character, and it makes me, and this is the same thing where I really like the monsters. Okay. And just, like, all the nuances that he has, and then, like, how it just makes um, Victor Frankenstein, like, so, like, sexually stung about, like, what he's done, and, I don't know, just, like, all the different themes in it, and then talking about, like, how it all, like, wraps up from the other authors and reading, which is mm -hmm. cool. Okay, I, I want to follow that up, but first, I'm just doing a little experiment. Did you see her earlier today? Courtney? Yeah. Oh, okay. Ah, there, all right. <laughs> Vindication. <laughs> Vindication. You are a more honest generation than my generation. Okay. Um, she said she, that you lived on the hall, but she didn't know whether you were coming, so I took that to mean you said to her, I'm not coming, but don't tell him. But I was wrong, so I apologize to both of you. <laughs> but it was all, it was all in, in humor. Um, okay, so yes, how does it do that? Um, just with all like the, there's like a lot of things about like patches of time, and there was one part of the beginning where we talk about like the tranquility of the mind and how you just like let everything go and it just seemed like a lot of themes from like words words really and mm -hmm. other things like from the ode <coughs> he wrote yeah um and then also the thing with milton and the blind <coughs> yeah okay good um if just based on um the people we've read in this class or whatever other knowledge you have of um romantic and proto-romantic poetry. What do I mean by proto-romantic? I mean Paradise Lost. Um, that is to say, to some extent, we could say that romanticism is um, forms around an idea of <coughs> Paradise Lost and an idea of, of what Milton is doing in Paradise Lost, that romantic poets um, are then emulating in their own poetry. Whether Milton is really doing that or not is hotly debated. Um, I think he is, but a lot of Miltonists think he isn't. Um, they've read around in Paradise Lost, whereas I have finished it. Um, but um, the romantic version of Milton um, is, the romantic, is the version of Milton that you obviously like you're nodding, Tony. I'm just you're just what? Following. You're just following. Um, the romantic version of Milton is is Satan as the hero of Paradise Lost. That's what, as I said before, what Percy Shelley will say explicitly. Actually, if you hand me your Shelley's poetry and prose, Danielle, um, what he says in the preface to Prometheus Unbound, among other places. Um, is this. Oh, by the way, do you know what the subtitle, does anyone remember the subtitle of Frankenstein? Yes, good. Or the modern Prometheus. Um, so who's Prometheus? Yeah. Who stole the mythology, steals the fire and the sun from the 
Yeah. So he steals the fire from he steals fire from the gods. Humans have been created, but they're nothing. But Prometheus brings them fire from heaven. Um, and in one version of the myth, he's punished for having done this, for making humans in some sense godlike. Um, one of the poems that you allegedly read by Byron is the poem Prometheus, um, where he also is thinking about um, this idea of um, a figure who brings to humans some spark or element or energy of divinity and um, who is therefore punished by the king of the gods for doing that. Um, the um, other Promethean story that will be relevant to this class, um, though not particularly to Frankenstein, but the other Promethean story that will be relevant to this class when we read Shelley's poem, Prometheus Unbound, Shelley's drama, Prometheus Unbound. But don't get your hopes up. It's not a drama like people wanting stuff from other people and um, doing things which are interesting. Um, it's a lyrical drama. It's all lyrical poetry, but with different speakers. Um, so it's incredibly intense. I'll just say, just to prepare you, that no one, I don't think, ever has liked Prometheus Unbound the first time they've read it. Um, but the more you read it, the more amazing a poem it turns out to be. Um, the kind of sustained attention that it requires of you makes it really, really hard because you're automatically going to read for the plot, but there is no plot. I mean, there's just the tiniest plot, um, a plot of uh, almost no interest whatever. Um, but it's like Greek drama. It's incredibly sustained, intense poetry from speech to speech, from speaker to speaker. Um, what the backstory of Prometheus Unbound is, is that Prometheus knows a secret, the secret of how Zeus or Jupiter will be dethroned, will lose his power as the absolute monarch of the universe and the monarch of the gods. And um, Jupiter is um, punishing him, torturing him, waterboarding him, you could almost say, in an attempt to find out what this secret is, what it is that threatens him. And Prometheus refuses to say. And so Prometheus, that the myth that Shelley is that Percy Shelley is interested in, is um, more the one where Prometheus refuses to kowtow to tyrannical power in order to help it sustain its tyranny. Um, the story that Mary Shelley is interested in, then these, these stories combine, um, but the story that Mary Shelley is interested in is the story of bringing a divine fire to people who are themselves, um, for whatever reason, it is regarded as inappropriate for them to have control of this fire. Um, so um, one other thing that it's worth knowing, um, especially if you read the introduction in Fear of a Quiz, um, is that Ben Franklin was known um, fairly frequently um, as the modern Prometheus. Um, ben Franklin was someone that the um, late 18th century and early 19th century 
enlightenment and post-enlightenment. Do people know what the enlightenment is? If I, if I use that term, are you all nodding? Yeah, you've read around in the enlightenment. Um, are you nodding? Yeah, okay, sorry. Um, ben Franklin is the great, Ben Franklin along with Jefferson are the two great American representatives to the enlightenment, the two great American um, members of whatever um, membership would mean. Um, of the Enlightenment. Franklin, f partly for his scientific experiments, what's his most famous experiment? The lightning. What were you going to say? The lightning. Yeah, the lightning on the, the kite. The kite. <laughs> yeah, um, the lightning on the kite. Uh, not chopping down the cherry tree, because that was Washington. Um, but drawing down electricity from heaven, how did he do it? Right, and so the lightning hit the kite and came down the string to the key. Um, incredibly dangerous and stupid thing to do. Um, but it was Franklin who demonstrated essentially that lightning was electricity and was the first person to attempt to master um, the idea of electricity. Now, she the Shelleys, Mary and Percy, are interested in galvanism. Um, do people know what galvanism is? So it was discovered um, really just a little bit after Franklin. Franklin, by the way, it gives, us our, gives us the name battery. Um, the idea of a battery like, oh no, my battery, I have to recharge my battery. Franklin invented that term. What a battery used to be was a whole bunch of guns um, shooting simultaneously. Um, it, they battered. The word battery is um, a lot of guns arranged in artillery so they fire simultaneously and they would really batter the enemy. Um, or assault and battery is the same use of the word battery. It's someone <coughs> battered. Franklin and um, what was known when Franklin was um, studying lightning was that you could get some strange kind of current going or you can get strange effects by um, mixing um, metal plates, putting metal plates on top of each other um, of different kinds of metal, especially if there was an acid between them. So I believe what you could do, I believe the first cells, what are called cells, like in a dry cell, um, is you would have a thin layer of something like vinegar between a plate of lead and I think of silver. Of silver. And um, then if you touched it, you would get the strange feeling in your fingers. That was called a pile. If anyone has taken French, the word for battery, anyone know? In French? Can you guess? Well, do you know what it is in Italian? Well, you know what it is in Italian. What is it? Bateria. Okay. In French, it's pile, P-I-L-E-S. Um, piles. Ah, pila. 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 Okay. And that means battery. Like, would you put that in a, in a, um, in a flashlight? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So, because what's happening is you have a pile of metal piece of metal, something put on top of that, something piled on top of that, that's called a pile. A battery is technically more than one cell. So a cell, a pile is a single cell in a battery. A battery is technically more than one cell because what Franklin was interested in was that if you combined cells, um, you got more current. So it was like a battery of artillery, but now it's a battery of electricity. So a battery is several cells put together, combined, 
Um, and each cell is a mixture of chemicals and two different metals, and the electrons flow from one from one terminal now to the other, but it used to be just one piece of metal to another. So in the mid-18th and late-18th century, do you know who he is, Galvini? What? Luigi Galvini? Galvini. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. Um, Galvini was an Italian um, physiologist and experimentalist, and what he discovered was that you could kill a frog and you could apply a battery or a cell, what's called a galvanic pile, because he had a particular um, uh, view of, of this thing, to the tendons, and it would jump. So you've all done this like in high school biology, right? Um, no? What did you learn in high school biology? If I dissected a frog, I didn't make it jump. So you never applied electricity to, no one ever did that? Really? Did you know that would happen? Well, huh, so when I was, here's a little autobiographical story. Um, <clears throat> when I was a senior in high school, I was in a ridiculous water skiing accident um, that um, basically stunned, and they didn't know whether it had stunned or actually cut the nerves to my left arm. Um, and, but at any rate, I couldn't do this for um, several weeks. I could, um, the radial nerve, I couldn't lift up my arm. Um, because one nerve was what is called involved. And um, so the physical therapists that I went to said, you have to keep the muscles going for when and if the nerve comes back, which it did. And so they had a machine where you can exercise your muscles <coughs> even though you can't do it yourself. And what it does is it sets a current going down um, the nerves below wherever the injury is and the current causes, um, or it may just set it down the tendons, I'm actually not sure now, and the current causes um, uh, muscle contraction, so the muscles stayed um, in tone, um, which was a really important thing because if you get nerves back and your muscles aren't in tone, um, you can so stretch them out that you'll never be able to use them again. So I had to use this machine. It was my freshman year in college. This had just happened just before my freshman year. It was my freshman year in college. So they gave me this huge, giant machine to bring to school, which I had to use twice a day to keep my muscles in tone. And it being freshman year and the drinking age at the time being 18, um, this was a fun party thing. Um, because... <laughs> What you could do is you, you could set the current really, really high, which um, why you could set it so high, I don't know. Um, but the result was that if you set the current really, really high, I mean, if you did it to a single person, if you set the current really high, it's like it could electrocute them. Um, so I don't know why they let you do that. But they did. Maybe they were interested in a kind of Darwinian um, uh, weeding out of people who, having injured themselves, are too stupid to do the right thing. But what we discovered was, um, so our, our floor had eight people on it, and what we discovered was if you set the current at full throttle, and you had one person here, it was kind of a, a, a serious game of telephone, and everyone held hands all the way around in a circle, and then the other person held the other terminal, and then you set the current at full blast, you could get a current going through eight people. Um, and it was kind of, you know, mildly electrical and sort of like 
Um, you, you got a buzz on after you got a buzz on. Um, and um, if a person would drop from the circle, people would get a little bit more wired, so to speak. Um, and if you touch people at the right places, reflex points, you could get their, their hands or their knees or whatever to jump. Um, so this is what we did instead of studying. Um, um, but what we were doing was um, repeating experiments that Galvani had done in the 18th century. And what he found was that, you, yes, running a current through tissue, through animal tissue, would cause contractions of the muscles, would cause motion. And so he had a theory, um, which was wrong, but he had a theory that what life was was electricity, that there was a kind, that the brain was a storehouse of a kind of static electricity. And no one knew what electricity was. It was just the weirdest thing that anyone had seen up until that point. Electricity is really weird. Um, but... Um, what he thought it was was that the brain somehow had a store of energy, of electrical energy, of this strange nebulous stuff, and that when living beings did things that living beings do, which is to say moved of their own accord, what was happening was the brain was sending, um, the brain was like a battery sending electric current down nerves. Um, nerves originally meant tendons, by the way. They didn't know the difference between nerves and tendons and muscles at the time. But sent electricity down nerves to move bodies, and that's what life was. So he thought he was approaching the secret of life. And in a sense he was, but not in nearly the sense that he thought he was. Yeah? Yeah, oh, yeah. And he would say, oh, God, that's too simplistic. Um, no, that Oh, the shocking machine? Yeah. I would, uh, well, he works with physical therapists, right? No, I mean, uh, doing it. Oh, no, he didn't do it with me. I didn't know him at the time. No, this, this was in much more innocent days before I knew your dad. Um, <laughs> uh, no, when I met, he might have, actually, you know, I was sort of really well known on campus because I had this really um, horrifying splint on my arm. Um, and so for about six weeks, people, everyone knew who I was um, because I was the guy with this really weird contraption on his arm. Um, it was called a Ranchulo Amigo um, because that was the um, sanatorium or something where it was invented. But it was basically a bunch of springs to prevent my hand from doing this, which would also have stretched out the muscles. So he, may not know, he might remember that guy without knowing that that guy was me. Um, so that would be, he might find out something interesting if you ask him about that, or he might not remember it. I mean, I remember it, but it was me. Um, I think my roommates remember it. Um, but anyhow, um, he was a year ahead of me, so he might have seen me in the dining halls on weekends with it, but, um, we didn't come to know each other till he was a senior and I was a junior. Um, but ask him, yeah, but he wasn't part of the fun. I had to return the machine. I was actually really bummed. Um, I was hoping they'd forget about it, but they didn't. Um, what it looks like is, um, is a kind of large portable speaker that you would attach to an electric guitar if you were on the road, um, but it had a lot more voltage than that. Um, it never occurred to me to attach an electric guitar to it. You could play someone into motion 
that would be really interesting. Make someone dance, kind of like the red shoes. And so this is all what Frankenstein is about. <laughs> Said he's segueing very elegantly. Um, but so the idea was that Galvani and then people who were reading Galvani, he was being translated into English, and Franklin and so on, they, in the discovery of electricity and in the discovery of how electricity interacted with living tissue, um, it started looking like they might be able to know what life itself was. Um, life was thought to be really until the mid-20th century, at least, life was thought to be this thing that couldn't be explained entirely through physics. Um, there was dead matter and there was living matter. And somehow when something died, it could be exactly what it was an instant before when it was alive, but the life would have left it. Um, so that idea of life as a kind of fluid that belongs to living beings that could disappear, um, that's how it was thought. That, that, that was sort of the conception that people had of it, this kind of ghostly fluid. Um, this essor was one word for it that would belong um, to living things, but then if you kill them, it would be gone. It would volatilize. It would evaporate. Galvani and his followers um, thought maybe that fluid... They knew electricity had fluid properties. Um, it flowed down things. It flowed down strings. It flowed across wires. Um, it flowed across hairs. It flowed, across, it flowed down nerves. And they thought maybe that fluid was the essence of life. So that's what they're talking about on the shores of Lake Geneva. Um, that's what the discussions that they're having when they're also trying to think of a ghost story. And the idea of um, Frankenstein as, um, that is the novel subtitle, The Modern Prometheus, um, is partly the, the idea that the fire stolen from heaven, that's really what Franklin himself did by flying a kite. He stole fire from heaven. That's why he's the modern Prometheus. That's what Kant called him, the Prometheus of our day, is how Kant described Benjamin Franklin. I think it should make you proud that Kant called Benjamin Franklin um, a Prometheus. It's not just, oh yeah, Americans with their Huck Finn in there. Um, it's like Ben Franklin and Kant. Um, so lots of the later romantics especially, and in particular um, the two Shelleys and Byron, were really interested in Prometheus. So, she so Percy Shelley writes um, Prometheus Unbound. And in his preface, um, he... Um, says um, that he's not following the, what the lost play by Aeschylus would have said. So I'll just tell you very briefly. One of, do people know who Aeschylus is? Greatest of the Greek dramatists. Um, the three great Greek tragedians are Aeschylus, Sophocles, and... Say it? No, no, he's the, the theory of drama. Euripides. Yeah, you know the old joke, Euripides, Eumenides. Um, so, you don't know that joke? That joke goes back as, as far back as Galvani, I think. Um, the Eumenides is a play by Aeschylus. So, yeah, Repides, Eumenides. You break it, you bought it. Um, so, Aeschylus is the first and by general agreement the greatest of the Greek dramatists. Um, not that many of his plays survive, seven I believe. 
And um, one, of the, one of his surviving plays is a play called Prometheus Bound. Not Unbound, but Bound. And it appears to be the second play in a trilogy. Um, Greek plays tended to be trilogies. If you know Sophocles, there's Oedipus Rex followed by... Yeah. Oedipus Colonus followed by... Antigone. Antigone. Yeah, so that's the trilogy. The story of Oedipus when he's a young... Well, not when he's a young man, when, when he's dealing with the consequences of what he did as a young man. Um, the story of Oedipus after he's dealt with those con- consequences, Oedipus Colonus, and the story of his daughter after he dies, Antigone. And they form a trilogy. Aeschylus' great trilogy, anyone know? Yeah? The Oresteia, which begins with the Agamemnon and is followed by, did you want to say? Oh. The Libation Bearers, mm-hmm. followed then by, I already said it. What? Orestes. No, Orestes is the main character in The Libation Bearers and in the Euripides, you, Eumenides, in the Eumenides, or the Kindly Ones, as they're sometimes called. Um, Eumenides means Kindly Ones. Um, and the Kindly Ones are really not kindly at all. Um, they're the Furies. They're called the Kindly Ones because that's a way of saying, I don't want to interfere with you guys. I think you guys are just swell. Um, they rip people apart. Um, Sartre has a play called Orestes, which is based on Aeschylus, or in this case, I think we could say what you guys like to say, based off Aeschylus, because um, what Sartre is doing is rewriting um, the Oresteia in a very different way. Um, so... Um, Prometheus Bound seems to be the second play of a trilogy, of which the third play was going to be Prometheus Unbound, or was Prometheus Unbound, but it's lost. So Shelley writes Prometheus Unbound, his own version. He says, I'm taking liberties. I'm sure I'm not giving you the same story that Aeschylus would have given. Um, And um, there's a reason that I don't want to do this. So he writes... Had I framed my story on this model, that is, of the myth that Aeschylus was no doubt following, I should have done no more than have attempted to restore the lost drama of Aeschylus. Which, you know, how much is that, really? Um, I should have done no more than attempted to restore the lost drama of Aeschylus, an ambition which, if my preference to this mode of treating the subject had incited me to cherish the recollection of the high comparison such an attempt should, would challenge might well abate. So if I wanted to write the lost play of Aeschylus, the very idea that I would try to do that would make me realize that was ridiculous. Aeschylus is the greatest, some people think, the greatest writer who ever lived, greater even than Shakespeare. Um, and for me to try to do that would be absurd, and I would have to give up my ambition immediately. But in truth... And now he goes back to what the apparent story Aeschylus told was, which is a reconciliation between Jupiter and Prometheus, where they agreed, they compromised, they agreed to both tax cuts and spending cuts or something. Um, And Shelley didn't want to do that. So he says, but in truth, I was averse from a catastrophe so feeble. Catastrophe means um, um, something like climax, 
Um, that is, it's when everything falls into its final form. A catastrophe literally means a sudden turn downward, a sudden fall. That's why catastrophe is always regarded as a bad thing. But in drama, it just means the, where suddenly everything falls into place, <coughs> where all the tension that's been ratcheting, it up, ratcheting up suddenly gets resolved. So he says, but in truth, I was averse from a catastrophe so feeble as that of reconciling the champion with the oppressor of mankind. So I didn't want to reconcile the champion of mankind, that is Prometheus, with the oppressor of mankind, that is Jupiter. The moral interest of the fable, which is so powerfully sustained by the sufferings and endurance of Prometheus, would be annihilated if we could conceive of him as unsaying his high language and quailing before his successful and perfidious adversary. So Jupiter is his successful and perfidious adversary. Um, and the idea that Prometheus, who so courageously stood up to Jupiter in the Prometheus Bound, which does survive, which we know, which is an amazing play, um, the idea that Prometheus would now say, okay, I'm willing to compromise, um, that was something Shelley did not want to write. And then he goes on, and this is picking up from what Marielle was saying, the only imaginary being resembling in any degree Prometheus is, yeah, Satan. Satan, good. The only imaginary being resembling in any degree Prometheus is Satan. Now, what I love about that is that, and this is something that if you're a romanticist or a Miltonist, you will get used to, is he doesn't say Milton's Satan. He just says Satan. Now, what he means by Satan is Milton's Satan. The Bible's Satan. Christianity's Satan. For him, who could possibly mean that if you just say Satan? Like, if you want to indicate that you mean the biblical Satan, say it. Be explicit. How would I know that if you say Satan, you meant you know, the Satan from the Christian religion. Satan is the character in Paradise Lost, unless otherwise specified. The default meaning, or the default reference for Satan is the Satan from Paradise Lost. Um, if you mean some other Satan, say so, because who's going to know that's what you mean, right? Um, so the only imaginary being res resembling in any degree Prometheus is Satan. And Prometheus is, in my judgment, a more poetical character than Satan. Because in addition to courage and majesty and firm and patient opposition to omnipotent force. So in addition to those things, which means those are the things that Satan shares with Prometheus. Courage, majesty, firm and patient opposition to omnipotent force. That's true of Satan as well as of Prometheus. So there you get in four adjectives Percy Shelley's reading of the Satan of Paradise Lost. But in addition to those things, he, Prometheus, is susceptible of being described as exempt from the taints of ambition, envy, revenge, and a desire for personal aggrandizement 
which in the hero of Paradise Lost interfere with the interest. So, you know, Satan is great, courageous, majestic, firm, patient, even though he's being um, tortured by omnipotent force. But he does have some more iffy qualities, more questionable qualities. Um, he's ambitious. He feels envy. He wants to take revenge. He um, has a desire for personal aggrandizement. Um, and in the hero of Paradise Lost, namely, who's the hero of Paradise Lost? Who is it obvious to Shelley? Yeah, say it. Satan. Satan. Yeah, all he has to do is, if you say hero of Paradise Lost, who do you mean? Satan. Um, if you say Satan, who do you mean? The hero of Paradise Lost. That goes practically without saying for Shelley. Um, but, you know, there's some slightly iffy qualities in the hero of Paradise Lost, just the way, you know, Huck Finn, since we talked about him. There's some things, you know, where he's kind of not entirely what he should be. Um, Prometheus doesn't have those problems. Um, so he is exempt from these taints, the taints of ambition, envy, revenge, and a desire for personal aggrandizement, which in the Hero of Paradise Lost interfere with the interest. And then he says, so there's actually a problem with Milton Satan, which is that everyone knows he's completely great in the Hero of Paradise Lost and that we should think he's completely wonderful, but we might like him just a touch too much. So now Shelley, Shelley is saying, you know, be aware that there's that Satan isn't all good, as you would naturally think, as any normal person would naturally think. But be aware that he isn't all good. The character of Satan engenders in the mind a per pernicious casuistry. Anyone know what casuistry is? Or casuistry? So it's a Jesuitical practice. It's what, it's, um, what the Jesuits um, argued. It's often used as a negative term, but the Jesuits use it as a positive term, and there is a strong positive connotation to it, if you look at it that way, um, which is that if there was some way of finding biblical or church doctrine justification for something that looked sinful, if you could find some argument on its behalf, then a person who had committed that supposed sin had to be acquitted because they were acting in conformity with at least some part of doctrine or of the Bible. So casuitical argument tends to be, as a negative term, but also as a positive term, tends to mean um, technicalities, defenses on the basis of a technicality, looking for something which will allow, through legalistic interpretation, um, finding someone who's clearly guilty, finding them innocent. Um, now, the Jesuits thought, yeah, because if there is a way to find someone innocent, it's an act of mercy to do so. So for them, it was, um, that was a great thing. But it came to mean that whenever anyone was corrupt, they would go to their Jesuit lawyer and say, well, you know, I've, I'm accused of corruption and you know, I've taken a whole lot of money from the church and I've had all these illegitimate children. Looks like I'm in trouble. Can you get me out of this? And they would find some obscure sentence and some obscure um, church father 
that would say what they were doing sounded okay, and then they could continue their corrupt practices. So as a negative term, it's a way of defending the corrupt. As a positive term, it's a way of, of saying someone should not be found guilty unless there's no way they could be innocent. So for Shelley, he's talking about pernicious casuistry, um, casuistry which um, allows us to forgive Satan even for the things that are wrong with him. So he says, there is a problem with Satan. The character of Satan engenders in the mind a pernicious casuistry, which leads us to weigh his faults with his wrongs. That is, we look at, what's, at his faults, at the problems with Satan, namely envy, revenge, ambition, desire for personal aggrandizement. We look at those faults, and we weigh them against his wrongs, that is, the wrongs that have been done to him. Not wrongs as in the wrongs he's committed, but wrongs as in the title, the wrongs of women, that is, the wrongs committed against him. Committed against him by whom? Who's committed the wrongs against Satan? God. So we might make the mistake of, when we look at the hero of Paradise Lost, says Percy Shelley, of weighing his faults, which are there, against his wrongs. And if we do that, we might excuse the former, excuse his faults, because the latter exceed all measure. So that is the wrongs that God has committed against Satan exceed all measure. And um, because those wrongs are measureless, we might fail to see that there are some faults that Satan has that Prometheus doesn't have. Um, so we'll look more at um, when we come to study Percy Shelley at um, some of the stuff that he has to say about Satan. This isn't it, but, um, but it's his general attitude. Um, but notice, therefore, that Prometheus is like Satan as a rebel against the kingdom of heaven. Um, and his rebellion takes the form of vast and unfair, has the result of vast and unfair punishment. Now, the question is, who in Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus? Yeah? He's not a doctor. You weren't here on um, last, last Thursday. Friday. Um, but everyone says Dr. Frankenstein. Um, everyone who knows that Frankenstein is in the name of the monster, they say doctor, but he never got his degree. Um, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Victor. Um, yeah. Why is he the modern Prometheus? He's a doctor in the movie, by the way. Um, that's something the movie gets wrong. Hard as it is to believe that the movie gets anything wrong, that's one of the things it gets wrong. The other thing he gets wrong is that it has this completely inarticulate Franken, um, <coughs> Frankenstein monster. Yeah, go ahead. Because he's stealing the secret of life. Yeah. Yeah, he's the one who is bringing the spark of life, the fire of life, to the inert material and bringing it to light. So it's the secret of life which should only um, belong to the gods, but that secret of life now comes to him. Um, 
how does that complicate the situations in Prometheus, in the Prometheus story, or in the in the um, par- the story in Paradise Lost? Do you remember what the monster says to Victor about his own creation? Yeah. Yeah. And he says, I should have been thy Adam, but instead I was who? Only one possibility, really. Since he won't create, who doesn't he create? Who does he refuse to create for the monster? Eve. So if, if you do the analogies again, um, if um, you like those, sure. <laughs> um, Victor Frankenstein is whom in, is analogous to whom in Paradise Lost, according to the monster from the monster point from the monster's point of view. God, and he Frankenstein should have been Adam, but was well forget who he was. Was who? Satan, I should have been thine Adam, but thou madest me thy Satan, whom thou drovest from paradise for no good reason, he says. So I should have been Adam, but you made me Satan. Um, and who does Victor Frank, who in paradise lost, does Victor Frankenstein contemplate creating, but then not? Eve. Eve. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so he doesn't, he doesn't create an Eve for the monster. Um, and thereby treating the monster who he should treat as Adam, he treats as Satan. And he does this because what he is is um, um, an incompetent, a um, um, unskillful uh, and non-omnipotent God. He has godlike power to create life, but he doesn't have any of the other attributes of God. He doesn't love his creation. He can't help his creation. He doesn't have the presence that someone who creates life, that is, that a God ought to have in order for it to be okay for that being to create life. Um, that's what the monster is complaining. So that's what makes, in some sense, Victor Frankenstein like Prometheus. That is, he takes for himself a god-like potential or substance or power and uses it in a context where he's not supposed to use it. But he's unlike Prometheus in that he's not the hero of his own story. The hero of the story is you know, at least insofar as the comparison to the Prometheus myth goes, um, and the comparison to Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound, which he wrote a little bit later after Frankenstein, at least in comparison to those things, um, the anal- the analogous figure in those um, in those things, Prometheus and Satan, the analogous figure in Frankenstein is the monster and not Victor. Um, so here you have a narrator 
who's telling his own story, but the story he's telling is a story in which he's um, not the most important character, in which the monster is the most important character. Um, so that's um, an interesting twist on the story of Paradise Lost, on the story of um, Prometheus. It's almost as though you're getting Paradise Lost from God's point of view, but not the God, the all-powerful God of Milton and of the Bible, but of someone who just manages to do, you know, it's, it's the Sorcerer's Apprentice sort of thing. Um, God's Apprentice, someone who um, meddles in things he shouldn't meddle in and causes extreme pain to whom? Victor Frankenstein's actions are disastrous for whom? Sorry? For a lot of people, yes. Name them. Yeah, anyone. Yeah, William. <coughs> the monster. The monster, too, yeah. Uh-huh. Father. Yeah. So basically everyone he has any contact with. Um, who gets hanged? Tristan. Yeah, for the murder of... William. Yeah, totally unfair. Um, and it's because he's too chicken to tell the truth, besides someone would believe me. Um causing the death of his father, um, his best friend, Clerval, who is probably a portrait of Shelley. Um, that is a figure of um, extreme loyalty and, and friendship and willingness to, be, to, to have friendship um, in all circumstances. Um, basically, everyone he comes into contact with, except for Walton, whom he almost who he has no right to think he isn't going to totally mess up. Um, but he doesn't, because Walton has to tell the story so we can read it. Um, so, yeah, he's in attempting to counter the facts of life and death, the fact that death comes to all. He causes early deaths and huge suffering to others. Um, how smart a person does Victor strike you? as being. <laughs> I, I like that. Come on, the dude figured out how to bring dead matter to life. That's pretty smart, right? Yeah, that's smart, but no. Book smart, yeah. okay. Lab smart. <laughs> okay, so what's the stupidest thing that he does? Yeah. Yeah. He says, oh man, he's going to kill me on my wedding night. All right, well, if it has to be, it has to be. <laughs> yeah, like how stupid do you have to be not to get what he's saying <laughs> when he says I would remember I will be with you on your wedding night um, and so, so alright I'm going to die then um, how many of you got like the first time you read it that Victor was getting wrong what the threat was did anyone think that, oh, no, he's going to get killed on his wedding night. Poor Elizabeth. Anyone have that attitude? No, I think... Now, a question you could ask is, were we supposed to um, think that that was what was going to happen? 
Um, in other words, you know, Mary Shelley's 19 when she's writing this. Um, and, yeah. Um, so I expect really good papers from you. Uh, yeah, she wrote this at age 19. Um, and um, it's really an amazing book. But on the other hand, she does make 19-year-old mistakes. Um, one mistake is a really typical 19-year-old mistake, if any of you have written fiction or papers or anything. Um, is <coughs> Do you remember how Elizabeth um, is introduced? Or, well, look at, the, look at uh, this moment. Um, so, sorry, not how she's, not Elizabeth. Um, go to, uh, I guess go to the beginning of chapter six. Um, um, is this what I want? Um, yes. Um, so here's the letter from Elizabeth um, to Victor. Um, and the third paragraph in of the letter. Um, little alteration except the growth of our dear children has taken place since you left us. The blue lake and snow-clad mountains, they never change. And I think our placid home and our contented hearts were regulated by the same immutable laws. Um, a lot of Frankenstein is about nature. And that's worth keeping in mind. That's part of its connection. Or the way it's about nature should tell you something, um, <coughs> should give you um, some interesting insight into what <coughs> nature is meaning for the romantics. Um, so... My trifling, um, my trifling occupations take up my time and amuse me, <coughs> and I am rewarded for any exertions by seeing none <coughs> but happy, kind faces around me. Since you left us, but one change has taken place in our little household. Do you remember on what occasion Justine Moritz entered our family? So, um, who's Justine Moritz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how plausible a letter is this? That is, when I asked who's Justine Moritz, my question, what I was really asking is, here we are 60 pages into the novel um, with a lot of backstory. What have we heard about Justine before this? Zilch. Justine? Who's Justine? Well... Are you guys too young for Buffy? Yeah, you are? That's too bad. No, you're not? Okay. Um, do you remember when Dawn comes into Buffy? Were you puzzled? So in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which if you haven't watched, you should, because it really is good. Um, Joss Whedon, come on. Um, Buffy suddenly has a sister <laughs> that we didn't know about for four seasons. It's like season four that she comes in. So she suddenly has a sister. And it's like, what? Um, 
And it's like, okay, I guess that's okay. We just happen not to know that Buffy had a sister. Um, but all right, she does. And her sister turns out to be involved in supernatural events in ways that Buffy herself couldn't dream of. Um, now, this gets explained. It turns out that Buffy didn't have a sister, but is now given false memories to believe that she does. Kind of total recall thing. Spoiler. Um, but here, it turns out, suddenly there's this other person in their lives who's really important, Justine Moritz. Do you remember how she came into our family? Probably you do not. I will relate her history, therefore, in a few words. So imagine um, getting a letter from someone you grew up with saying, Hey, do you remember Bobby who lives with us? Um, do you remember why he lives with us? You probably don't. Let me give you some backstory about Bobby, whom you've known from as long a time as you can remember anything. Um, so here's the backstory. The girl had always been a favorite of her father, blah, blah, blah. Um, my aunt observed this, and when Justine was 12 years of age, prevailed on her mother to allow her to live in our house. The Republican institutions of our country produced simpler and happier manners than those which prevail in the great monarchies that surround it. Hence, there is less distinction between the several classes of its inhabitants, and the lower orders, being neither so poor nor so despised, their manners are more, often, are more refined and moral. Um, a servant in Geneva does not mean the same thing as a servant in France and England. Justine, thus received in our family, learned the duties of a servant, a condition which in our fortunate country does not include the idea of ignorance and a sacrifice of the dignity of a human being. Justine, you may remember, was a great favorite of yours. <laughs> so do you remember that? How, before you went off to school this year, there was this person who lived in our house who you really liked? I don't know if you remember this, but let me just remind you so that you can understand the letter that I'm writing. Um, <coughs> so what do we call that in a creative writing class? Incompetence or first draft-itis or something like that. That is, what a competent revision, rewriting of the book would do is introduce Justine much earlier. You have to introduce characters who are going to be important you can't just say, you might remember that there was someone who grew up with us whom we haven't mentioned and no one has mentioned so far, but the reader needs to know who this person is, so let me remind you. You know, it's like those incompetent phone conversations in movies or plays, which is, wait, what? You're late? Oh, you got a flat tire. Oh, you were driving along and suddenly you had a blowout. Oh, you're waiting for AAA. Oh, they said they'd be an hour you know, all those O conversations where we can figure out what the other person is saying because the person talking to them is saying exactly the same thing. So those are not really realistic. And um, what more realistic conversations are, well, how long is it going to take? God, I don't know if we can wait an hour. You know, then you can figure out. We're all really good, especially in an age of cell phones, and figuring out what the person on the other side of the phone is saying. Um, Actually, um, I guess it's anecdote time. Um, Laura was talking to a friend of hers on the phone yesterday, and Daniel was right there, and I was right there, and she said, well, I can't really um, talk about it now. Um, yeah, there are money problems, but I really can't talk about it now. And she was talking about, she just didn't want Daniel to worry about someone that we knew, but Daniel immediately thought, oh my God, am I in Breaking Bad? Um, are there things going on between them that I have no idea about? Um, so figuring out what's going on on other sides of conversations, um, we do it all the time. 
Um, but this is incompetent the way it would be in a play. Um, so there is incompetence. There are things that she does wrong um, in her writing of the book. Um, in the way, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. What version of the text are you reading? Are you reading the original, the 1819 version? Yeah. Okay, how does, that, how does that letter go in the 1819 version? Seriously? Yeah. I didn't. It must just not be in the same place. Um, well, so it's right after she quotes, or the book quotes the Ancient Mariner, like three pages later. Do you have that part? <laughs> It's not in volumes in the 1831, but it would be in volume one. Okay. I got this for a different class, but I just figured you would say it. Yeah, no. The, the version that she liked was the revised version, mm. somewhat revised version of 1831 with the introduction. So you don't have the introduction either. So you would really have screwed the bomb to quiz. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but recently, some people have put out the earlier version. Um, Yeah, for 1A. Um, it's puzzling because the version that made her, I mean, it was a very famous book at the time, but the version that everyone read from 1831 through like 2000 is the 1831 version. She revised it. That's the version that um, continued to be the great work in English literature. Then people went back to the earlier version because it was somehow fresher, but it wasn't. It's not. So you don't have this long letter? Um, my dearest cousin, you have been ill, very ill. Probably somewhere. Okay, yeah, I just, I don't know the 1819 version very well at all. I don't think I've even read through it. I just know some of the differences, but I don't remember. Sorry? My dearest cousin, so the chapter starts, Clerval then put the following letter into my hands. It was from my own Elizabeth. Okay, so... What I'm looking at is the third paragraph of that letter. Little alteration except the growth of our dear children. Okay, so, yes, you have that? Yeah. Um, and then, so in that paragraph, probably you do not, I will, you, do you remember on what occasion Justine Moritz entered our family? Okay, yeah. All right, so, well, no, that's great. Okay, so how does it go? Do you not remember Justine Moritz? Go on. Probably you do not omit her history, therefore, in a few words, please. Okay, so that's even worse. <laughs> because the point is, well, do you remember this person who was constantly present and lived with us? I doubt it, because I'm just making her up on the spot in order to get my plot going. Um, so that's, what that is, is exposition done fairly incompetently, um, reasonably incompetent exposition. So the question is, when Victor Frankenstein doesn't get what the monster is threatening when he says, I will be with you on your wedding night, um, are we supposed to understand it, which would be true in a competent, in a, in, uh, by competent, obviously she's a competent writer, she's a great writer, but often great works of literature, you may have noticed if you're English majors, often the greatest works of literature are not good works of literature, are not the most competent kinds of work. In fact, you could almost say that um, great works of literature are almost always not as good 
as good works of literature in the same genre. Um, as an adventure story, Moby Dick is not as exciting as a whole lot of 19th century adventure stories. Um, and yet, it really is probably the greatest American novel of the 19th century, almost certainly the greatest American novel of the 19th century. Um, it's unusual for great works to also be really good. Um, Shakespeare is really good as well as great. That's something that's, that's really amazing about Shakespeare. Mark Twain is great as well as really good. But those things often separate because what greatness means is originality. And originality um, often means that you're figuring something out for yourself instead of doing it the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah? I may be wrong about this, but I have the same feeling when I was talking myself uh -huh. uh, last semester. It was very, for me, it was very unconventional, but I was totally blown away by it. Yeah. Than any other American poetry. Yeah. But if what you're looking for is, you know, a rollicking poem, you know, of the sort that Kipling was particularly wonderful at, to take an example. People don't read Kipling much anymore, but if you do read Kipling's great poems, I mean, and by great I don't mean great the way Milton is great, but great as in, wow, what a great poem. Just like Lincoln, what a great movie. Um, Argo, what a great movie. Um, if, you read Link, if you read Kipling's poems of that sort, um, they give you everything you want in a poem. I mean, they really do. Anything you could want in a poem, Kipling gives you in his best poems. Um, and if you say, well, Whitman's supposed to be a great poet. I think I'll read him. Um, you're going to get almost none of that. What you're going to get is something strikingly different, but almost none. There's almost no product in Whitman. And so what you could say is very few great works of literature are good pro is, are, constitute good product. Um, Shakespeare does. That's one of the, as I say, one of the surprising things about him. Twain does. That's one of the surprising things about him. Um, Hemingway probably does. Um, but Fitzgerald, for example, doesn't. Faulkner totally doesn't. Um, so here the question is, obviously, Frankenstein is a great novel. The question is, is it good product? And if it were good, does that, does that category make sense to you, good product? Um, it's a Hollywood category, among other things. It's a TV category. It's, you know, when you buy a product, you know what you want. When you buy Crest, you know what that toothpaste is supposed to be. It's not like, oh, my God, I was blown away by the surprises and the, and the, and the really moving melancholy reversals of the toothpaste, especially as you got near the end and you thought there was going to be no more toothpaste left. But suddenly there's this explosion of, of, of toothpasty sorrow, um, which really filled me and made me glad to the brink of fear. Um, God, that was amazing. I don't know if Cress will ever have a tube of toothpaste again, like that tube of toothpaste. But no, it's product. That's what you want. You want something reliable. Um, so the question is, how good is, is she at product? And part of product is in um, um, gothic novels, which Frankenstein is in the tradition of. Part of product is, is that we often should expect something to happen that the character doesn't realize is about to happen. 
you know, think of scary movies where someone is about to open a door that we don't want them to open. So we see more than they do. We understand that it's a real mistake to open this door, um, that there's a reason that it's got this rusty lock on it, easy to break, and yet it's still locked. There's a reason the music is playing the way it's playing as they are about to break the lock. Um, so often we know, just in very trivial ways, that certain things are going to happen that the hero doesn't seem to know. The question about Frankenstein is, are we supposed to realize, and I'm asking this as a genuine question, are we supposed to realize that the person in danger is Elizabeth and not Victor when the monster says, I will be with you on your wedding night? Everyone did realize it, right? You all knew Elizabeth was in danger. And you all felt what a noob Victor is for not realizing that, right? Um, did you, do you think Shelley was a noob thinking that you wouldn't realize what the danger was? Or do you think, yeah, you were supposed to realize it and supposed to think um, Victor's being a moron right off the bat? Yeah? I think you're supposed to think that so we know what's going to happen and we're supposed to know what's going to happen and be reading against the grain of Victor's own narration is, is what you think. Yeah, what do you think? You do too. What do you think? Yeah. He's supposed to be foolish and we're supposed to see that he's foolish. So we're, we're all agreeing so far, Marielle? Okay, Courtney? Yeah. Huh, okay. So all this exposition about how clumsy she can be doesn't change your mind. All right, that's fine. Um, why does he kill Elizabeth and not Victor? That's the really deep question. Is what? So it's like killing your creator? How many people have seen Blade Runner? Um, what's the relation of, do you remember what, what um, Roy does to Tyrell? First he gouges out his eyes and then he kills him. Um, we only find out he's dead when we hear, and we see him start strangling him and then the police report comes in. Um, okay, why? What's the, so what's the idea of revenge? Remember, revenge is the word that Shelley is saying is one of the faults that Satan displays. Yeah. Because Victor doesn't create you for him. Uh-huh. So, like, like, the monster was gone. So you should, without your lover, like, know how I feel. Right. So you should know, you should have the same experience that I'm having, which is an experience of wanting a mate or a partner or a lover um, and having that person not exist. Um, what's the difference between not creating a bride of Frankenstein and killing Elizabeth? I think there's an obvious difference, right? Yeah, Elizabeth's one is, one is um, murder and the other is... Um, simply not bringing something into being. So there's a difference, but also similarity. In the monster's eyes, it's a similarity. In Victor's eyes, obviously, it's a huge difference between killing an already existent being 
and not bringing a being into existence at all. It's all the difference in the world. It's the difference that first off sets Victor going. Here is someone who is alive and is now dead. That's terrible. I would like to bring the dead back to life. That's what drives him to begin with, is the desire to bring the dead back to life. But instead of bringing the dead back to life, he does something else. He creates new life. That's the difference that you could say is mapped into the difference between killing Elizabeth, Elizabeth is now dead, and refusing to create the bride of Frankenstein, who never existed to begin with. Um, all the difference in the world there on one level, but on what level are they the same? That is to say, if we um, look at differences, some of you know my, my views about lumping and splitting. Um, you've heard, you remember those? No? Kind of? I remember you talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things that always takes, right? Do you remember? Okay, so this is actually Darwin came up with these terms. Um, there are two ways that intellectual um, assertions, arguments, theories, speculations, two forms they can take. Um, one is to lump and the other is to split. What, whenever you say anything which is meaningful, you're saying, you're comparing things that in some ways are different and in other ways are the same. That's why the compare and contrast questions that you hate so much in paper topics, which I never give, um, the compare and contrast questions are always, how are these two things like each other? How are they different from each other? Um, if you say that a rose is a rose, you've said nothing. If you say that... Um, um, a pear is a rose, you've actually said something interesting. Um, something interesting, which is also true in Linnaean classification. Pears belong to the, to the order of roses. Um, so lumpers in intellectual life, lumpers are people who take things that look very different from each other and say, actually, beneath the surface, they're the same thing. Um, if you look at the way um, waves hit a shore. And if you look at um, the way populations increase and decrease, or the way um, economies go through boom and bust cycles, it'll turn out that the math of those two processes are the same, and they're the same for the same reason which is there's a buildup followed by a release. So um, economy and waves, on the, waves at a beach, lump them together, they're really two versions of the same thing. Isn't that cool? So that's a lumping argument. It's taking two things that look very different and, say, and saying they're really the same thing. A splitting argument takes two things that look very, very similar to each other and um, says nothing could be more different than these two things. Um, nothing could be more different from um, what this sentence said by Wordsworth means and this almost but not quite identical sentence said by Coleridge means. In fact, they're vastly different. All the difference in the world belongs to those differences. In literature, when you lump and when you split, um, generally Lumping will take the form of saying there's no difference between Frankenstein and Paradise Lost. 
they're practically the same work of literature. Um, there's, 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 uh, you know, just it's only the surface that looks different, but deep down they're the same work, and it's a, it's a single but amazing work, Frankenstein and Paradise Lost. They're exactly the same thing. Um, splitting would take the form of saying something like the 1819 edition of Paradise Lost and the 1831 edition of Paradise Lost are utterly different works and they have no connection with each other at all except a very superficial connection that some sentences are the same. But as works of literature, they're as different as they could possibly be. So lumping and splitting, those are, those are strategies for saying something interesting. Um, I don't mean strategies as in how will I say something interesting? Oh, I know, I'll lump. Or, oh, I know, I'll split. No, it's just that's what it means to be interesting, is to split things that people thought were very <coughs> similar to each other and say, no, they're really different from each other. Or to lump things that look um, very different from each other and saying the differences are really superficial, they're really the same thing. Um, think about it in politics. Lumpers. Democrats and Republicans, no difference, whatever. Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, they're all doing the same thing. It's all exactly the same. Splitters. Um, you know, the difference between Hillary Clinton and um, John Kerry as Secretary of State is so momentous that it may change the world. Um, it's so important that everything changes. Or Obama in, his, in term two is so vastly different from Obama in term one that it's not even fair that he's president because we didn't elect someone who is as different as before. So these things always occur, lumping and splitting. So now I'm asking you, in terms of lumping and splitting, to split the difference between an uncreated, between a non-existent spouse. And if you split, you say there's all the difference in the world between a spouse who has never been created namely the Bride of the Monster, whom I call the Bride of Frankenstein because that's the movie, but the Bride of the Monster, um, a spouse never created, and a spouse who is killed, who, did, who was created and killed, all the difference in the world. Don't just say, oh, two, two non-existent beings, they're both the same. It's all the difference in the world. But if you lump them, what do you get? I've just said it. Two non-existent beings. Two non-existent beings, so big deal. Um, it's the same thing. So who is splitting and who is lumping between the monster and Frankenstein? The monster is lumping. Frankenstein is splitting. Um, okay, but now I'm going to ask you to lump. Um, what is similar? Why does the monster... What makes the monster's revenge make sense in not create, in, in, I'm sorry, in killing Elizabeth as a revenge for not having his own bride created? How is that similar? How is Victor having an experience that the monster thinks of as the same as his experience? Yeah? It's a duplication of Right, okay, good. So we're going to end with this and bring in Frankenstein again. Um, I mean, we, we won't spend all the next class on Frankenstein, bring it in again. Um, 
But now this is, this is, I think, the really important thing to see, which is that there's, there's a kind of rotation that we can do on <coughs> the um, ways characters relate to each other and map into each other. What Victor fails to understand is how intensely the monster longs for a mate. Because Victor, this is the way I want to put it now, Victor does not credit the monster with full subjectivity. There's an issue in philosophy called the issue of other minds. Do we know that other people exist? Can we know that other people exist? It's related if you lump but also vastly different if you split from knowing whether the external world exists. That is, we could very well be sure the external world exists. You could be sure that the table in front of you exists, that the books in front of you exist, and so on. But think you're dealing with robots. Could you ever know that you weren't? Could you ever know that other people existed? And the answer basically is you couldn't know any better than you could know now. How could you? What would it mean to know that someone else existed? We believe mostly, most of the time, that other people exist, but can we know it? And what evidence is there for it? And it doesn't seem like there could be any evidence beyond what you have. So this problem of other minds, as it's called, is partly a philosophical version of the question, how much do we think of other human beings, some other human beings, a few other human beings as fully human like ourselves and how much do we think of them simply as people populating our own world rather than being worlds themselves which is what it means to be a mind, it means to be a world how much do we see others understand, really believe of someone else that she's a world and how much is she simply someone in our world? Now, who is better, or is one of them better, between Victor and the monster, is one of them better at conceiving of another mind as being a world in itself, as being as real as we know we are? You all know Descartes' famous statement? Which is? I think therefore I am. Yeah, that's what we know for sure, that I am. What any person knows is I am. The question is, how good are you at knowing that someone else am? Not that someone else is. Sure, you all exist the way this book exists. No problem with that. But to think of someone else as amming the way you am, that's harder. But that's what it means, or that's a way of describing what it would mean to accept the full subjectivity that someone else is as fully real as you are. Most of the time we don't think of people as fully real. How could you? Just drive down the Mass Pike and notice that you're not thinking of all those other people and all those other cars as fully real. You're not. But can you ever, do you ever, 
think of others as fully amming the way you do. And that question comes up in Frankenstein. Who, so, let's, so the way I'm going to ask this, and, we'll, and this is the question we'll end with, is does Victor Frankenstein think that anyone else fully ams the way he does, the way he am? Does the monster think of anyone else as fully amming the way he does? Just hold your thought till, till um, Friday. Um, if the answer for either of them is yes, who? Okay, see you all Friday. I think it's due just before vacation, right? The 22nd? Yeah. Or the Friday before? Yeah, the Friday before vacation.